I believe, Travis, that for this moment in time, the Sermon on the Mount serves a similar purpose. And when we read it as individuals, when we read it in our families, when we, we try to commit it to memory, when we understand what it's saying about each of these different virtues, meekness and an appetite for God and purity of heart and, and even persecution, when we grasp that vision, we will be equipped to navigate the complexities of this historical moment. It's watering time, everybody. It's time for Apollos Watered, a podcast to saturate your faith with the things of God so that you might saturate your world with the good news of Jesus Christ. My name is Travis Michael Fleming, and I am your host. And today on our show, we're having another one of our Deep Conversations. There are certain texts and sections of scripture that have a huge impact on a moment in time. For example, in the Reformation, it was the book of Romans and Galatians. But if I were to find a text today that I think is really necessary for the church to see again, it's the Beatitudes. Because we need a radical reorientation to a kingdom perspective. You know, our job at Apollos Watered is to be a catalyst that encourages and equips Christians, leaders, and churches in their missionary encounter with Western culture. And in order to do that, we have to have a missionary identity. And it's an identity that is grounded in Christ and his mission. What did Jesus come to proclaim after all? It was the kingdom of God. It's an upside down kingdom, as Chris Castaldo names it. The Sermon on the Mount is the manifesto then of that kingdom. It connects our upward relationship to God with our inward transformation and our outward relationship with others. That's exactly what Chris is showing us in his new book, The Upside Down Kingdom. And if you haven't heard part one from earlier this week, then I would recommend going back and listening to that one first. And today we're going to be tackling some very honest realities that we face. Anger and meekness, dying to ourselves and being willing to be despised by a culture opposed to God, and offering forgiveness and peace even when we feel discouraged. And I want to give you a warning. This is a reminder of our calling to a new and different kind of identity, and it's more than a little challenging because the call of Jesus is a call to live counterculturally, which is not easy to do. Others need to be reminded of that, and that's where you come in. You see, we can only produce this kind of content, be able to remind you and remind so many others because of listeners like you. We rely on our watering partners to make this happen. And our ministry is growing and we need your help to make that happen. We're looking for watering partners who want to partner with us as either a monthly watering partner or giving a one-time gift, whatever the Lord lays on your heart. And if he does lay that on your heart, simply click the link in your show notes and select the amount that works for you. And together we can water faith so that others can water their world. Now let's get back into my conversation with my friend, Chris Castaldo. Happy listening. Talking about youth, talking about, I mean, all these subjects within our, our, our world, you introduced a word that I had not heard before. And I'd like you to talk about it right now because you wrote about gentleness in a hostile world. And gentleness, of course, we always hear juxtaposed against that meekness. And meekness doesn't mean weakness, of course. It's power under control, this idea. 
but you you introduce us to this idea, and I want to make sure I get this right. So forgive me if I mispronounce it. Resentiment is that the right way of pronouncing that word? I think they say ressentiment. ressentiment. Oh, uh, ressentiment. Well, I was never going to pronounce that right. What do I know about so, French? So, <laughs> well, you do. You do. You've got all the pronunciations better than I do. So, mine's like, "Hey, how y'all doing?" That's how mine's going to be. So, so what is this idea of ressentiment, and why? What is it, and why is it important for us today? Yeah, let me take a running start at it um, because what you said at first there prompted a thought. We have to be honest. We have to be forthright here in the Midwest. There's this, this value we sometimes call Midwest nice, where it's people struggle to be real about their concerns, right? When, when I was um, Bible college, I would go home to do ministry in New York. And my pastor said, look, if the Lord calls you back here, um, you never have to worry about someone stabbing you in the back. They'll stab you in the chest and they'll tell you off as they do it. And then he said, and it's kind of refreshing because <laughs> at least you know where people stand. Well, <laughs> sometimes here in Chicago land, I'd like a little more of that. Um, so we need to be forthright. Jesus was angry with the Pharisees. Mm-hmm. He overturned the tables in the temple. He went toe to toe with the Pharisees, called them whitewashed tombs. And Paul um, exhorts us to be angry. That's an imperative. Be angry. Do not sin. So just want to make that qualifier that the these are their issues that really matter. They're life and death. And we need to care deeply about them. Okay. The problem though, is when we become bitter, when canceling others and outrage is the normal mode of operation. And that brings us to the resultant idea. I think what drives that very often is a resentment. The reason why I introduced that word and I, I rely on the work of James Avison Hunter who's who's written helpfully on it is because it's more than just resentment in, as we understand it in English. It's also violence. It's a, a desire to take revenge. You know, it's more extreme. And I think what happens is you see this person with whom you disagree as the enemy. And then you increasingly look at them through this lens that villainizes them and they have to be eliminated. And I think that's the direction of society, right? I mean, it, no longer is it just pulling the the pin on the rhetorical hand grenade and lobbing it over the fence. Now there's real conflict in the public square in some places. And, and Lord help us as we approach this next election year. So that's the problem. And I'm suggesting in the book that meekness is the solution to that problem. So how, okay, that lives... Uh, that introduces a whole bevy of questions. I run a Facebook group with a, about a certain theologian, and there was a man who made a comment on there, and he said, "I agree." There was a there was a quote we had put up by this theologian, and he said, "Well, I agree." And he goes off and says, "I agree with this." However, since God has given the United States as a country to this people, and we are to protect our young people from the, and he goes through a whole list of different things, because this is the mindsets that we're encountering today. You know, I both know this. How do we respond when it seems like there's this nationalistic impulse of taking it over, even to the point of resorting to violence historically? And you, again, you in the book introduce Constantine and you mentioned that whole temptation. There was the best and the, the worst at the same time, those impulses that have come from that. But how do we help our people cultivate an attitude of meekness 
in a culture that it's a zero sum game and the end justifies the means. I know some people would say, doesn't matter who gets elected as long as they do what we ask. And if they do what we ask, look how many lives were saved because of it. And they might cite Roe v. Wade. He had different justices that were appointed as a result of that. How do you, how do you go about this? I mean, this is where people are. I want to be meek. I want to obey the word of God. And yet I see tangible results of this power pursuit and this idea of baptizing this nationalistic idea of God giving us this country. This is how we need to behave. This is how we need to go about it. No more Mr. Nice Christian guy. No more just sitting there. I mean, you know, the, 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 the language of the lingo, how do we juxtapose those two things? Yeah. We follow a crucified savior. Have this attitude in yourself that was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be exploited, taken advantage of. But he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on the cross. That is altogether countercultural, counterintuitive, um, ironic. And that's the kingdom in which we live. That's the Savior that we follow. Jesus will go on to say in the Sermon on the Mount, love your enemies. Now, let's just pause for a quick moment and, and have uh, do some honest self-evaluation. Do we love our enemies? I struggle to love the people that are good to me, my friends. Love our enemies? This is so different from the way of this world. It's so different from Constantine and Tautanika conquered by this. We want to conquer. We want our side to prevail. And of course, both sides of the aisle see it through that lens. That is not the kingdom. And I think this is the big challenge. I was recently at a Bible college here nearby and the students asked me, I was teaching and they said, what's the biggest challenge before the church now in pursuing the Great Commission? And I had all of these examples of acrimonious jangles uh, come to mind. But rising above them all was partisan politics, where we wave the flag for some cause. Now, look, we got to care about those things, be engaged. Absolutely. And they do matter. That's why I started the way I did um, about anger. There are some things that should anger us and we should care and we should have courage to speak, but let's do it as Christians. Let's speak the truth in love. Let's see grace and truth as a balance that must always be held together and not a zero sum game. What role then does this crucifixion idea and, I, and I'm with you, Jesus dies to win. What role does that play in dying to ourselves and our own desires play with our role as responsible, responsible citizens that have the ability to practice civil disobedience in a society when we know that there is a direction that it is taken, that culture has taken that is completely antithetical to God and the gospel? Yeah. You know, the end of the um, Beatitudes speaks of uh, blessed are those who are persecuted, uh, but theirs is the kingdom. Blessed are you when they revile you and say all kinds of insults against you. Rejoice and be glad for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. That's the prophetic ministry. Speaking the truth with courage, even if it comes at expense. So here at Naperville, the YMCA opened the, this is going back now a few years, the, the locker rooms to both men and women, gender neutral. And I wrote a letter and asked for a meeting to say, this is misguided. 
this will come at the expense of our daughters and our wives. And once again, females are the ones who are suffering as a result of these policies. Um, We need to do that. And um, God help us if we don't. And that relates to, just as an aside to the way I understand righteousness, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. In our traditions, we often understand righteousness or justice. The, the words are interchangeable, right? In, in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin, it could be rendered either way. Justice, righteousness. We understand that in terms of our righteousness before God, justification. But we also need to understand that in terms of righteousness in the soul being made holy. But it goes further still. It's righteousness through us. And that's the prophetic tradition. Call it social justice, call it social righteousness, whatever. Um, but somehow, some way, the truth of Christ must reach through his people and bring about transformation in this world. Uh, that is not only what we're called to, it's who we are in Christ. What was the result of your letter? <laughs> I never heard back from them. <laughs> I was blown off. But, and yeah, that's going to happen, but uh, we need to do our part. Um, so yeah, I'm, that's my point about the zero sum game. I, I think we, we fall off either side of that horse where we do nothing or we, um, oh, so tempted to mention a book by Eric Metaxas, but I won't, um, in which we kind of have to be activists without reference to the Sermon on the Mount. It's not either of those extremes. It's the kingdom of Christ. That leads me to another question. One of the things you mention, you talk about mercy. And you actually give a quote by Sinclair Ferguson saying that mercy is getting down on your hands and knees and doing something to restore dignity to someone who life has been, whose life has been broken by sin. Why is that important to keep in front of us? as we study the beatitude. Yeah. The extension of mercy is the natural response of someone who's received mercy. I mean, it, it is, that is who we are, recipients of mercy. It's interesting when um, the Lord declares who he is in the Old Testament, Exodus 34. He says, the Lord, the Lord, compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. It's interesting to me of all the things God might have said of himself, I am sovereign. I am holy. He chose to emphasize his steadfast love, his mercy. Um, And so for the person who has been redeemed and is walking with Christ, that quality will be the leading edge of their life. In the book, I I tell a, a moving story. Some people say it's, it's the most moving part of the whole book of, um, a friend who was a leader on the mission field that came home, mm-hmm. he called, said, Hey, my wife and I need to visit you. Can we come over now? I said, sure. So when he arrived, he had this distressed look on his face and said, can we go for a walk? So absolutely. So we, we set out, his wife visited with my wife, Angela, and he went on to tell me about his infidelity and that uh, he he's under conviction and he needs to tell his wife and he, but he didn't think he could do it himself. So he came to my house in order to confess his sin in our presence. Because my wife and I had mentored them years before. 
So we walked back to my house and my, my buddy and his wife sat on the couch across from us. And it was like watching a train wreck in slow motion with loved ones on the train. So there is his wife, I call her Margaret in the book, listening attentively as he explained what he had done over the course of time. And it was ugly. And it was 10 minutes of him giving a full-throated confession of his immorality. And she listened and eyes, tears began to stream down her face. And when he was done, it was like I could hear the devil cackling in the background. I've won. I, I have managed to undermine the ministry of this gifted leader. And um, I've destroyed his family. And it, it was the, the darkest situation I had ever seen until Margaret raised her chin and she declared, I belong to Christ. I am therefore committed to our family and I am committed to you, David. And in that moment, it was like light shone down from heaven, pierced that darkness. And the new creation of God was made manifest. The reality of the gospel was displayed before our very eyes. Now, to be sure, they had a long road of restoration to work through. But that was the decisive moment in which the, the, the victory started. And uh, I think that's what mercy looks like in action. It was an encouraging story to read. You can almost picture the entire episode happening before your eyes, but to, to hear the pain, the anguish, but yet the grace. And you know that it is a journey ahead, but there was hope in the middle of all that because, as and you mentioned this, there's this vision of God that comes. When you see God in his glory, you see God in his holiness, it purifies our hearts. You actually juxtapose that in our culture of consumption. And you, you mentioned this, you, in a culture of nonstop advertising aimed at peaking our discontent and fear, marketing that makes us semi-neurotic about what we eat and the clothing we wear. Our hearts are restless, always trying to extend ourselves with finite goods to bolster our identity. We become consumed with our place in society, developing a hyper-awareness toward other people that seems them sees them as big and God is small, and that values human interaction and divine worship as ultimate. So this beatitude is a gracious reminder that the focus of our sight is inextricably linked with the focus of our heart. How does this vision of God, and how do we cultivate this vision of God in our hearts in the midst of this culture of consumption? Yeah, I think of Tozer's words, the opening of his book, Knowledge of the Holy. What comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And, you know, in scripture, when, when we read about the heart, it's not just the seat of our emotions. It's we, we think with our heart, you know, the, the conceptions of the heart, it says in Genesis, were wicked. And that's what eventuated in the flood. The psalmist talks about meditating and ruminating with his heart. So um, what we think about God really matters. In the, and that's where the Beatitudes are essential. Uh, I watched a program recently of the, in which a river was dredged. It was all this sludge. They, they sent down these units that scraped the bottom of the river clean. And I thought, wow, if, if this river had feelings and emotions, it'd be crying right now. It was a violent act. But, but that's what's necessary in order for anything to live. And so it is when the Beatitudes are 
brought to bear on our hearts, um, they have a purifying effect, cleansing effect. And that's, that's what we need. As I said earlier, it, it reveals the, the illicit attachments, the idols. Um, and so I think the Beatitudes, particularly in the Sermon on the Mount, is of timely importance. You know, in the 16th century, the Lord used the book of Romans and Galatians to bring about gospel renewal in the face of clericalism and legalism. That was, it was a especially relevant portion of scripture. I believe, Travis, that for this moment in time, the Sermon on the Mount serves a similar purpose. And when we read it as individuals, when we read it in our families, when we, we try to commit it to memory, when we understand what it's saying about each of these different virtues, meekness and uh, an appetite for God and purity of heart and, and even persecution, when we grasp that vision, we will be equipped to navigate the complexities of this historical moment. You just put the past right back behind me Running to the future, you revive me Know you're with me anywhere that I be How great a grace it's ever gonna find me You gave me life, now you're my reason why Put my hands in the sky, no one's stopping your shine When I'm with you, I'm right, I just trust I don't strive Lord, one billion times, God, I lift up my eyes You lift my eyes up to the sky Your love much more than I could find Save my life, you come through every single time I see the light, I see the light In this historical moment that we're in, and I, I agree that the Beatitudes are a counter-catechesis of our modern malaise. Nevertheless, in the middle of all this, our anxiety still is high. And you brought something to the forefront and um, your, your chapter on peace. And I, I think personally, as I read the book, this is where I really found you, you hit your stride. Maybe it's where I'm at in my own personal life right now. But you mentioned the devil's strategy. Distract us with fear, undermine our faith, and derail the enterprise of peacemaking. How do we overcome this? And how do we keep from surrendering our peace when for many of us, we're not even sure if we've ever had it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Blessed are the peacemakers. So, so it's not simply the realization of peace, but it's extending that into the lives of other people where there may be conflict. But in order for us to do this, and this is a tradition of interpretation that goes back to the early church fathers, we must possess that peace ourselves. We can only give away what, what we first have. And so it, it kind of returns us to the question from earlier in, in this anxious age, uh, where do we find peace? I don't know, this is where I find the, the whole notion of a counterintuitive faith so helpful. Uh, each day when we lift our heads from our pillows, we, we face challenges that are great, greater than we are. We don't have the wisdom. We don't have the strength. And yet, the good news of Christian faith is that God works through our weakness and inadequacy in order to accomplish his purposes. And we just, that is a fundamental truth. That's an assumption of the Beatitudes. And so the kernel of wheat falling to the ground, there's all these wonderful metaphors that make that point. 
look, there's no way I could serve a church as a pastor without that reality. <laughs> it's like, Paul says, who's sufficient for these things? Surely we're not. You know, I, um, this, this illustration will be too old for most of your listeners, but people have asked me before, who do you look to as an example of your life in ministry? And I'll talk about certain mentors, but then eventually I say, really, I'm just like Mr. Magoo. You remember Magoo, the cartoon? He's this, this rather dense guy who's always on the verge of catastrophe. There's flower pots falling out of second story windows around him, um, pianos crashing down. And it's as though this transcendent force leads him around it. You know, the, the hand of God, if you will, guides him to safety. That's my story. <laughs> That's your story. We can't take credit for these things we do in the name of Christ. We're Magoo. But praise be to God that he delights in using awkward people to accomplish his purposes. Um, I think we need to have that reality ever before us if we are going to fulfill the calling to which we're called. Well, you mentioned also, I want to read this, this part right here. And you've already alluded to it when you said that anxiety has a destabilizing effect, destabilizing effect on our peacemaking. The anxious person, says James, has a divided mind that makes him unstable in all his ways, James 1.8. We become emotionally unstable with divided affections, intellectually unstable with divided thoughts, and relationally unstable with divided loyalty and conviction. Being unstable in every dimension of life causes us to be bereft of peace, both internally and externally, for anxiety causes simple things to be hard, and hard things seem to be agonizing. Then you go on and you said that we're all affected. It affects yeah. different people in different ways. But you mentioned it. our fearful imagination suddenly creates distorted and perverse conceptions of God. That's one side of it. But then you take the other side. And I, I wanted to do address this too, because I, I think you juxtapose these very, very well. On the other side of the godless spectrum are the snowflakes who actively sidestep peace and peacemaking. The darkness of Adam's shadow leads these people to figuratively crawl into a fetal position, suck their thumbs. They're afraid of criticism, rejection, and failure, relinquishing hope that they can overcome life's shadows. They refuse to subdue their fleshly passions and inner conflicts, preferring instead to complain about how they've been wronged. They are victims so consumed by bitterness that they cannot look beyond their grievances and therefore never rise to the challenge of peacemaking. The real estate between these extremes is where most people live. I don't think I've encountered anyone that's been able to identify those so well and articulate it where I saw myself in both of them. So I don't know if I'm the one that's just really screwed up here, but, <laughs> and, and you also talk about the state of the West, which is something that is very appropriate and relevant to our audience as we're trying to help people have this missionary encounter. And, and then you said this, I'm going to read one more at length. This will be my last quote. You might say that the West has experienced a perfect storm in recent years, a swirl of social isolation due to viruses, ferocious election cycles, nonstop political combat, and cold-blooded war, cold warfare in Europe. These traumatic factors and others have undermined peace in our world today. In my community, for example, we have seen a drastic, es drastic escalation in hospitalizations and interventions, along with depression, chemical dependence, abuse, suicidal ideation, and self-harm. The most prevalent symptom, though, is not so obvious. It's the low-level hum that hides in the corners of our minds, the feeling of discouragement or melancholy uh, that imagines God and his redemptive promises to be irrelevant and distant. Yeah, 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 yeah. Thank you for reading that. 
Um, the you mentioned anxiety. Uh, it's interesting. The word that's translated as anxiety is merimnao, which comes from two Greek words: meros, which means to divide, and nous, which means my, mind. So it is a divided mind. That's at the center of this problem. Uh, we have God's promise; we believe it, but why are we distracted to the extent that we we no longer look to the promise? Um, so I think that's the fundamental challenge. If we were to boil it down, we we need to ask God to help us concentrate upon His presence, His promises, and and walk with Him imperfectly as we do. But as for the the quotes you read. Um, we, yeah, we're in this place in which each day we have all these reminders of how we're Mm -hmm. inadequate. And I think it does lead us to one of two extremes. One is we give up. That's the first example. You say, we just don't care about embodying and proclaiming Christ. Um, or we, on the other hand, can, um, can care about it, but, but feel like there's no way we can possibly do the things God has called us to do. And so, you know, the first error is one of disinterest and the other one is one is of discouragement. And uh, I think this is where the, the reminder of the church through the centuries is so crucial. We have this notion of the apostles and these great saints through the ages who just kind of like hovered above the troubles of life to do God's will, right? <laughs> and it's so helpful to, to read biography, read the book of Acts, and realize it was in the midst of struggle and strain, of turmoil, of life and death threats that God showed up to empower his people. In Rome, I went to the Mamertine prison, which is where we believe um, Paul and uh, Peter, um, Peter, maybe Paul, were kept. Uh, that's where Paul would have written Second Timothy. It's dreadful. You got the sewer system running right by. You're you're in this this lower cavern. They 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 send you through a hole in the ground. I mean, there's everything about this place screams uh, desperation. And then you read Second Timothy. And Paul talks about finishing the race, what he's looking forward to in glory. (laughs) How do you do that? I'll tell you how you do it. You do it by keeping the presence and promise of God before you. That is the reality that informs your identity and calling. And so, you know, um, I think it it comes down to that simple truth. And and if we can encourage one another to live that way, we'll, we'll be better equipped to deal with anxiety. When I look at your book, seeing the title, The Upside Down Kingdom, I encountered a guest the other day on the show that mentioned that it's not an upside down kingdom. It's a right up, it's a right side kingdom in an upside down world. And and of course, you've heard that too. Yeah. But looking at this book, what is your hope that God does with this in our current cultural moment? Well, this matter of distraction is omnipresent. And the Sermon on the Mount confronts us with the reality of Jesus. And so I I think that's the starting point uh, to remember our risen savior is alive. 
He invites us every moment of every day, come unto me, all you who are weary, heavy laden, I will give you rest. Uh, God loves us now as we are in Christ, not as we're supposed to be. <laughs> like these, these truths are crucial in order for us to receive the mercy of God. But then having received it, to in turn share it with others. It's, it's noteworthy that the Sermon on the Mount begins in, uh, just beforehand in chapter four of Matthew with Jesus preaching the good news, repent for the kingdom is at hand, speaking of himself. And then it is followed immediately by, you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world. And I think that kind of bookending, that inclusio leads us to recognize the, our calling to radiate this light, to impart this hope to others. And so let's capture that vision for ourselves. May our hearts be gripped by it to know Christ and then to look around on the horizontal plane and see all of these lost peoples wandering in darkness without hope and do everything we can to engage them and see them drawn closer to the risen Savior. Mm, I like I like that hope. I like that idea. You know, often when we conclude our show and you've already done this, but I'm going to ask you to keep it down even a little bit further. We ask people to leave a water bottle for the week, the different guests that we have on our show, because we do want to water faith so that people then can water their world. We know that there's a lot of spiritually thirsty people out there right now that really need encouragement, that need to have this perspective, to need to have this truth, this purifying vision of God, as you've already alluded to and just drawn our attention and really put a magnification on. But what's the water bottle? One thought that we can leave our audience with this week to help them in their dry and weary world. Yeah, I'll do even better than a water bottle. I will leave you a cappuccino. How's that sound? <laughs> okay, that doesn't really go. What is it? I am the cappuccino of life. I mean, Jesus is the caffeination. <laughs> no, you're right. You're right. You're right. Let's, go with the water Let's go with the water bottle. It could be I, Italian. It could be Italian water. water. <laughs> All right. It's, it's sparkling water for you. Pellegrino. Um, it's Pellegrino. When I was in Rome, it's Pellegrino. That's right. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Did Melissa just whisper that to you? Like, no, she didn't, but I know she would have. Right. If she heard it, and she's going to, when she hears this later, she'll say Pellegrino, yeah. and then she'll laugh when I no say doubt. it. I know she no will. Um, we went to the Castle Sant'Angelo, which is right next to the Vatican, in the Vatican area. And um, it was there that Pietro Cardenasecchi, an Italian reformer, was held for having preached the gospel. He was a Florentine nobleman, and the Inquisition kept him there for some time. He was tortured, and he insisted on uh, an understanding of the gospel that safeguarded the doctrine of justification by faith. And he refused to recant. Well, it's interesting, there's a little room just at the exit or entrance of the castle to which they take you before you're burned at the stake. And I got to see that place where Pietro was, was um, brought. And there they asked him, um, what, what do you say now? You've been, you've been um, with us for all these months. Are you willing to bow the knee to the Pope and, and let go of these private interpretations of yours? And Karnasaki said, I have been saved by the grace of Christ in the gospel. And that is how I live 
And if it is his will, I will die. <laughs> and then I've been reading the, rec- the inquisitional records. He pled with the inquisitor to trust in Christ. He, he tried to evangelize the guy who was in a moment going to send him to the stake. And he went to the stake calling for this person to repent and believe in Jesus according to the gospel. And I walked through that area and I thought, Lord, please give me courage like that. That's where the Beatitudes go. Blessed are the persecuted, but theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And in this moment of history, I think that is the kind of courage and conviction we need. That's a good word, brother. That is a great word. I want to learn more about him now that you've mentioned him, but what we all need that type of courage right now. There's a lot of people that are so anxiety ridden. They're so isolated from other people and they want to do something for Jesus. And this is a a good perspective to have, to be renewed by, to have our minds nourished by, to give us a new, or not even a new, a refreshing picture of God that's already there. It's already been there. It's just, it's there for our taking. But as you mentioned, the devil's strategy is to keep us isolated and to derail our peacemaking in the middle of this. So it's good to have these words as an encouragement as we go about fulfilling the mission that God has for us where we are. God bless you, brother. Thank you for coming back on the show to have a discussion. I always enjoy our conversations and I pray that God blesses this book and your ministry. And I would recommend it to those that are out there. If you want a book that's going to help challenge your vision to help you go deeper in the midst of this moment, to have those roots that go down deep in this cultural moment where the winds are blowing all around us, to be nourished on the truth of who God is from his word, I would encourage you to do so. So Chris, thank you for coming on Apollos Watered. Could you urge the man leading you to your death to receive Jesus? I mean, that's incredible. Think about that. He not only faced death, but did so concerned for his enemy. An enemy who was convinced that he was the good guy and was literally doing God's work. That's the power of the gospel. The power of God at work forming you, by the way. You see, the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes in particular, show us all the heart of Jesus. They show us why a man being led off to die can, until his dying breath, seek the salvation of his executioner. The realities and sins of our culture are very real. They produce and should produce real anger on the part of a believer. But you and I can never forget that God offered us mercy. He redeemed you. He was merciful to you. And if you've given your life to Jesus, then you know that. You feel that. You are redeemed. But do you know who else needs to hear that? The world around you. Who is opposed to him. They need that same mercy. Should you get angry at the world? Yeah. You are to be angry in the manner of Jesus. He didn't shy away from conflict, but he also didn't get bitter and seek the destruction of all who oppose him. Instead, he sought their reconciliation. That's countercultural. That's an upside down kingdom. And if you want to truly have a missionary encounter with the West, You need to start with the new identity and mission that he has laid out in the Beatitudes. Show that you are so changed by Christ and that the world sees that you have something that fulfills in a way that the false promises of success and power and fame and all of the things that others chase after can never deliver. But you have to be honest. You have to be honest with yourself 
about your own state. You have to know and be shaped by him. The Beatitudes are more than just a great place to start. They show you the heart of Jesus's kingdom. I encourage you to get a copy of Chris's book. It's not that long, but it is action-packed and a refreshing challenge to your soul. I want to thank our Apollos Watered team for helping us to water the world. This is Travis Michael Fleming signing off from Apollos Watered. Stay watered, everybody. No, no, no.